0: We now open our Bibles in the book of Acts, chapter 4. And I notice we we did go straight to prayer before I read the Scripture itself. I will be reading it now, verses 23 through 37, and going to the very preached word following. So Acts, chapter 4 beginning in verse 23. This this continues where we left off um, after Peter and John preached at the temple explaining um, the miracle that was before the people. There, There were leaders who came and took them and they were arrested. And yet after having been questioned and warned they were let go free, and in verse 23, we see the response from there on. So Acts 4, verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, Lord, Thou art God which has made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God bless the reading and the... Preaching of his own word. And let me have... Dear congregation, um, three, three thoughts by way of, intro, of introduction. We see here three things putting everything together. Not, not just the passage that we read, but where it comes from. The miracle that was done, the sermon that was preached... The the thousands that believed, it says um, that now the number grew to 5,000. In in chapter 4, the beginning said that. And then the ensuing persecution, and now they're being received by the brethren, the prayer that they make, and this narrative about the love that they had. Looking at all of this together, we, we see that there are certain perils with preaching. Because we saw Peter's first message, 3,000 people were baptized and believed, and they were fine. We saw this second message, the same preacher, now the number grows to 5,000, wonderful results, but they're not necessarily fine. They're they're arrested. And it may be well-received, a sermon, it may not be well-received, it may go well for the preacher or for the church around about the preacher, it may not go well. And we, we learned this from the very beginnings of the church in the book of Acts. We, we also see that the, that the persecution then that comes, and we know that this will follow not just for the leaders, but for even Christians in general, that this comes at the very beginning of the church. And, and it is a message, as it were, for us as well. We, we should not be surprised when persecution comes to us because it came to the very newborn church. This is a second sermon, and persecution is already there. And so the affliction for the church should be seen as, as a familiar thing. We should not be surprised by it. it. It is being shown to us that it is something to be even expected. And then a third thought is that when we see that men persecute believers, these very ones who are the persecutors are actually pursuing God. There's this dynamic that is set forth because, yes, they were arrested... And as they go to the believers to pray, they are remembering Psalm 2, and they say in verse 26, "...the kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ." He is remembering that these very leaders who were now arresting them were the ones who arrested Christ... They say in verse 27, "...for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together." But of course, they have in their hearts the reality that those same people were gathered against them. And the whole thought is that their anger against Christ continues. And this is both a great warning for those who are persecuting the church... Because when you persecute Christians, you are, in essence, persecuting Jesus. It is a great danger to be a persecutor of the church. God takes it very personally. And, and this is the great encouragement for the believer to know how closely connected God is with your experience, this, this tension and affliction that we should see as common and not be surprised by it, there's a great comfort and refreshing to think that the Lord is taking that even as unto Himself. So if you are suffering for the sake of Jesus... Jesus takes that suffering as if it were against Himself. So just as it is true what Jesus said in John five twenty three that He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, so we can say that those who do not honor the children of God, they are not honoring the Son nor the Father. And so Christians can take comfort in that. But then, well, actually one more thought regarding all of this is we see God's protection in providence. Um, They were arrested. These were the same people who committed Christ to the cross. You can imagine what was going through Peter and John's heart, thinking, could this be it? Could it be that we're going to be crucified also? But they were let go. No scourges, no fines that we know of, no, no added nights in the prison, but they were set free. And, and it really shows that even when men do their worst, they're doing it because God is giving them the freedom to do it. It is not because they have the power, in essence, to do it. These are the men who arrested and killed Christ, but they do not kill at this point, Peter and John. Now, the great significance, if we put together what we've read now today, this prayer that they go and meet with God's people, and then this narrative of how they're living their lives, sharing out of their abundance with those in need. If we put all this together, what what we have now is not only that we have here the first persecution that the church is under, but we have the reaction of the church to the first persecution so we are learning from how God protects His church but also by giving a boldness to God's people, to His people and also the reaction. It, it, this is in essence a manual for you and me, for the church of the Lord Jesus of how we are to respond if persecution comes to us. And we can summarize it in, in two ways. There are two reactions. They pray and then they give. And their prayer shows their faith, and their giving shows their love. And that's why we have these two points: um faith as dependence, and then love as giving, loving as giving. So first of all let's let's look at faith and and to see that it, it is here being being described as a dependence. and first, let me connect prayer and dependence. The fact that they're praying is showing their dependence. And we can understand that this praying is out of their faith. So we can also connect faith and dependence. And the reason I'm doing this is I, I do believe it's helpful for us to understand faith with as many words as we can. We understand that faith is knowledge. You need to know what you are to believe. And then faith is this. It is believing that, that Jesus did die for sinners. But then you have to also trust. And that is, you could say, the heart of faith. And a good word to understand trust is the word dependence. Um, you, you look at this prayer, and there is one word that can express this prayer. It is the word dependence. They, they, they go to God's people, and when they are with God's people, they go to their God together. And, and in their prayer, they are acknowledging God's sovereignty over everything. They're acknowledging that even, even the death of Christ and even their suffering, none of this is a mistake, none of this is an, is an error. In verse 28 it says, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So they're acknowledging that they serve a God whom they have all the freedom to depend upon because He is sovereign. And then in depending upon this God, they say, Lord, behold their threatenings. Just look at what they have said. Listen to what they have said. Literally look to what they have said. So it means, of course, to listen. And then they ask this. This is their, their one request, in essence, to themselves. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Allow there to be healings. Allow there to be signs and wonders that people may know who the Lord Jesus is. So they're, they're going to God for all of this. And this is their dependence. Um, they know they don't have to fear men. They were taught by Jesus whom they're supposed to fear. What, what comes to mind is Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, beginning in verse 4. I'll read a few verses. Jesus said this, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So God is saying, if you have anyone to fear, it is me. And as long as you trust me and fear me, you are well. I will protect you. I'll take care of you. So they knew they didn't have to fear those men. They knew they had to fear God. And so they prayed. And that was their dependence. Now, secondly, let's look at dependence of faith. Just connecting, not just that their prayer showed their dependence... But let's now see that this dependence is showing their prayer, and and for you too, if you if you want to grow in your faith, well, you must grow in your dependence, dependence on God, and um, dependence is to rely on, it is to depend upon, it, it is to trust. It, it helps when we think of the opposite of dependence, if. If you do not have dependence on on someone, we're thinking in a general sense, but of course ultimately upon God, well then you have autonomy. You have a self-reliance. You have a self-dependence. It is a self-sufficiency. If you believe in Jesus, it means you trust Him. It means you depend upon Him. It means your sufficiency is in Him. You rely upon Him. You depend upon His holiness. You depend upon His love, His death, His resurrection, um, um, His ongoing prayers. The person who doesn't believe, it means that that person depends on himself. The unbeliever is declaring, I am self-sufficient. I am self-reliant. I do not need someone I depend upon. And here the word dependence also helps. We, we know the phrase that he is dependent upon a substance. It's almost as if, if he or she did not have that substance, he would die. And, and that can be literal. There are certain substances that if the person who's dependent were to immediately stop without any kind of medication and help, They could literally die. They are dependent. And we should be dependent on nothing but upon God. He should be the one upon whom we depend. A commentator, Daryl Bach, said this, This prayer is an expression of complete dependence of God. A recognition of His sovereignty. Of course, he's not saying that their dependence is perfect. But, but this is what this prayer is showing. It's their dependence of God. A recognition of His sovereignty. A call for God's justice and oversight in the midst of opposition. For an enablement for mission. And for the working of His power to show that God is behind the preaching of the name of Jesus in healing and signs. And so this dependence is is shown forth possibly um, mostly in one phrase in where we read that they were filled, in verse 31, filled with the Holy Ghost. You know this, being filled with the Holy Ghost is not just something that happens to you, but in God's Word, it is something that we're commanded to pursue or to do. Be not filled with wine, remember? But to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. It is to be kept, It's when you keep in step with the Spirit. The the way it can be explained on the side of what the believer is to do is that he yields to the Spirit. That he acknowledges that he needs the Spirit. It is this sense of dependence. And when you have this sense of dependence, you are, as it were, that, that empty vessel that the Lord fills with the Spirit. Because you're coming with a dependent heart. We don't have the power to fill ourselves. But we are commanded to come with this sense of dependence. And, and for all of this we depend upon Him to help and to strengthen. And so, so this is the dependence um, of faith. We can also see here the power of faith. When, when Christians have this faith that is very true that is very strong because you sense your utter dependence you come acknowledging lord i do not have my method i do not have my finances i do not have my mechanisms to solve all these problems i need thee to help now think beloved of the whole reality here they they came to god's people and the first thing they do is pray. They're not going to their books and thinking, okay, brothers, you know, we need to devise a method here. Persecution is going to happen. What are our decisions to go forth in this ministry? What can we decide? What can we think? Do we need money? Do we need committees? Do we need planning? Nothing of the sort. They pray. That's their method. See, their method is dependence. And and beloved, this is what we need to learn from history to history. It's been the lesson that is less learned, you can say, by God's people. We have a problem. We think we need money. We have a problem. We think we need people. We have a problem. We think we need committees. We have a problem. We think we, we, we need to just find out the next new thing that will get us out of this problem. And... It is never to say that God will not use certain methods and certain means. know, to sit down with a friend over coffee and talk about Jesus, in a sense, that's a method. You're using the method of relationship. So there's nothing bad in methods when we understand right that we depend not on the method. We depend on the God of all sovereignty. And, and this is what the church is being used here to teach us. They depended. And then look at the power of this faith. This faith that was truly connected to dependence, that was born out of dependence, was a powerful faith. We, we need to remind us of ourselves of this. Peter had not only been afraid of these men, he was afraid even of the servants of these men. Remember, it was before those people who were outside around that fire. They were either the servants of the people in there or servants of the servants in there, somehow connected to those who were the leaders. Peter was scared even of them. It was once or twice or thrice removed from these very men. Peter could not say that he was a servant of Jesus. But this was Peter who was talking to these very people in verse 18. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 18 says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So just think, Peter denied Jesus. But now look at Peter, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And and you see right here in verse 19, someone who took to heart what Jesus said. Do not fear them who can only kill the body. Fear me. And this is exactly what Peter is saying. You judge. Am I supposed to fear you or fear God? Am I supposed to obey you or to obey God? This is the power of true faith. But not only this, if we put the whole narrative also, see the power to subvert the natural selfishness of the human heart so that all the people we saw were united in serving and helping those in need. Beloved, we all know what this means. Can you imagine that one extra property, let's say, that you have, when would you consider selling that, put at the apostles' feet, so that the church could care for those in need? We naturally don't want to do this. If you worked for 20 years to purchase that, now you're going to sell it and give it to the poor? It sounds like what Jesus taught that young man, isn't it? And follow me. Well, this is the heart of the church. This is the power of faith. Power to share the gospel with boldness. In in verse 33, it's what they did. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Beloved, this is all what true faith does. And we can speak also, not just of the dependence of faith, the power of faith, we can speak of the unity of faith. Because this is what we see also in, in the whole narrative. Um, as soon as they're let go, they go to their company. It's, it's precious how they put it. In, in verse 4 it says, "...and being let go, they went to their own company." They went to their family. They went to their group. The church is called their own company. And what do they do? They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said. So they're united in prayer. And now, not only are they united in prayer, in verse 32, they're united in love. Because it says that they were of one heart and of one soul. And in this, I believe, in a sense, captures the heartbeat of this whole passage. We see the church united in faith and united in love. One heart and one soul. That is to say, they were with one mind. They were united to care for the needs of one another. The church would not be where there's a poor person suffering and there's a, church, a, a churchgoer, a Christian, who is rich and fine and keeping it all to himself. We're, we're not going to exist this way. We're not going to see someone suffering and do nothing about it. We will care. That is the unity of faith. There's a togetherness. And we're going to see a little more about this togetherness even about in, in when we look at the love But one more thing is to think of the message of faith. So we saw the dependence, the power, the unity, and thirdly, and fourthly, and lastly, in this first point, the message of faith. Um, The most important thing was not that they were giving um, food to people who need it, it was the message that they were giving that was better food, it was food unto eternity. And that's also in verse thirty-three. And with great power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We hear of an earthquake. There was a there was a healing before all of this, and then this earthquake, and then we see this is amazing love and giving so much, and then we do see the power in that. There there will be more miracles that will happen. And, and there will be this miracle of selflessness where they are caring for one another. But as much as all of that is amazing and good, it is this love, it is this unity, the most important is the message that they're proclaiming. Because this is what they prayed for. When, when they were praying that God would listen to the threats, He said, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. The, the preaching of the word is the main thing they wanted to make sure would happen. If they didn't have boldness, it wouldn't happen because now it was dangerous to do it. So they need courage to do it. And then when they even mention those signs and wonders, it's it's just so that people will give attention to the word. It's not for the sake of the signs and wonders. That's the mistake that we also make and they're... they're the religions still today that do focus so much on the signs and the wonders and the message is left to, to the side. The message of faith. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, boys and girls, it's, it's not because this is the only part or the most important part of the whole message. What, what's happening here is that it's, it's almost what you could say a figure of speech of sorts. The word, the word resurrection is being used as a part of the whole. The whole ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His birth, His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and then even His ascension into heaven. All of that is, of course, their message. But they're using the word resurrection as a, as a summary for all of this. Um, because it is, it is like a base word. The moment you speak of resurrection, you capture Everything. Because the resurrection is of someone who lived and died. And the resurrection is of someone who's now alive and well. And the question arises, where is he? Well, he ascended. He's on his throne in heaven. See, that word captures everything. And that is the message. The message of faith. And that is the message that people are to believe. And when you believe, you you have this faith that is dependent. You'll have this faith that will be powerful, that will bring unity. And and I would say this is how it is. The more faith we have, the more united the church will be. The more faith we have, the more power the church will have. The more faith we have, the more dependent we will be. And the more faith we have, the more faithful we'll be to deliver the message. Because it's the message that people must believe. It is the message that we as Christians must depend upon more. And so this about faith, but it leads us to the theme of love. Because as, as we see all this faith throughout the whole passage, not, not just in the prayer, but in the prayer and then in the loving and in the giving, but now let's talk about this loving and giving. We, we, we see love as giving. And, and first of all, let me speak of the giving nature of love. This, this is something that should really help us. Because we think of love in terms of affection, we think of it in terms of a feeling, because that's a dimension of love. Affection and emotions are part of what love is, but they're not the whole thing about love. And when we think of our world, the the, the secular world, that's all they think of love. They, They might think that when you give things, you're being charitable, and you're being generous, and you're being kind... And of course they will say you're being loving. But they look at relationships and they easily say, I stopped loving, you stopped loving. Okay, let's break up, there's no love. As if the feeling is the deciding factor. But they're not realizing that love is giving. And and a, a man who says I don't love you anymore is literally saying I don't want to give to you anymore. And vice versa. A woman who would say, I'm sorry, I don't love you anymore. She's saying, I will not give my life to you anymore. My time, my my attention, my affection. It is to stop giving when you stop loving. And that really helps us because we can see love in a very tangible way. Literally. You can think of a present and you give it to someone. That is what love is is now of course you can you can go through the motion and give something and not have love but when you love you do give and that gift will truly be loving now think think of how great this manifestation of their love in their giving is because we're not talking about a church of 200 people we're not talking about a family of five people and you just give to each other according to the needs. Or even 200 people seems like it could be manageable. But we heard last the number 5,000. And we, and, and we heard that it was 5,000 um, men. The number of the men was about 5,000. Some commentators, they estimate that possibly the church by now was around 20,000 people. Because when you think of all the little children, and the men who are married, and, and, and just that these are estimates, it could be fifteen to 20,000 people. Many of whom don't even know each other. They're all strangers. But what are they doing? They're caring for each other. And And just like we thought of dependence, and we thought of the opposite act... Let's think of the opposite act of this love. What, what affections would keep this love from happening in our hearts? If we saw 20,000 people, and let's say that, let's be very, very, um, very um, conservative and say that 1,000 are the people who are needing help. Out of 20,000, 1,000 are needing help. They're needing my money. They're needing, they're needing my food, my, my contributions. What would keep me from giving that? Well, number one, it would be pride the thought that I deserve to keep what I own and it will always be my own. It's selfishness, believing I alone am worthy to enjoy my possessions. It would be greed. Because instead of giving by nature, I desire even more. Why would I give this? I'm even wanting the second one of this. We're wanting more, so why would I subtract from what I'm even wanting to increase on? It would be greed. It would be ingratitude. Because when we, when we give to others, it is an expression of our gratitude. Because giving, in, in, in a summary, we're saying, Lord, it belongs to Thee. So I'm giving it. It's a thank You for having given it to me. And now I want to give it to Him. So if I want to keep it, it, it is in gratitude. It is even laziness. Because I loathe having to work more to replace what I gave as a fruit of my work. And it's also forgetfulness. When we don't give, we're forgetting that we have been given everything. You notice the dynamic, right? I, I, I look at what I have. Someone gave it. God gave it. I have my health. God gave it. I have the food before my table. We all as a family pray and thank God for that food, right? We're, we're acknowledging, Lord, this food did not originate in our power... Thou hast given it to us. But then we see someone in need and we give to them. If you don't, we're forgetting how we got what we have. Pride, selfishness, greed, and gratitude. Laziness, forgetfulness. These are the words that meditating um, would be the opposite and would not make the church do what would make the church not do what they did. But true love... Always gives. So true love will be humble, not proud, will be selfless, not selfish. It will be generous, not greedy. It will be grateful, not ungrateful. It would be hardworking and not lazy. It would be remembering and not forgetful. The best example, and the supreme example, of course, that sets forth. That love is giving is God Himself. In the most well-known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave. Immediately you put those two together. His, his way to show love was by giving His own Son. And when the Lord Jesus is on this earth, in John fifteen thirteen, He said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Um, so, if you have love, you give a certain gift. If you want to show the greatest love, you give your whole life. Because then there's nothing else to be given. And that's exactly what Jesus said. There's greater love hath no man than this. See, no one can give a, a greater love than to lay down his life. That's the greatest sacrifice of giving. And that's what Jesus said, John 15, 13. And, and it set forth this love as giving. And, and this is what we see. The church is, is so big now in numbers. And they see people who are needy. And their hearts are hurting. And so they do what they can. And they sell what they have and put it at the apostles' feet. And they take the leadership to distribute all of these goods paul uh, luke is not dealing here with the problems yet there they will come the very next chapter will show that not all the believers were were humble and selfless and generous the next chapter will point to a husband and a wife who who saw a, an opportunity here to gain recognition to look like they were humble and selfish and generous, selfless and generous, etc. You can imagine how many more were those who said, oh, I don't want to give, and and then they felt that they were being selfish, wanting to keep it, and ended up not. They could have sold something, but didn't. There are probably all those details. Luke will show that it's not all so perfect, and and we'll give the example in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. Just like he did, he, he had said how there was favor among all the people toward the church, but then all of a sudden there's that miracle and they are arrested. And and now Luke is showing this love that is so amazing and so precious, but then he shows the example of Ananias and Sapphira. See what he's doing is he's he's painting a full picture. He's being very honest. But but we we do gain then the reality that okay there were turmoil there was turmoil outside and then even inside, but to a great extent we need to understand this this was astonishing the church was really helping and loving one another so love as giving I mean the giving nature of love and then secondly the voluntary nature of love I, I need for a minute to speak of this I know I touched on this. When we, when we covered this passage more in detail not too long ago, we brought this, and it's, it's worth bringing it back because it's a very important principle. Love is not voluntary. The Christian has to love. It is, it is a fruit of the Spirit. We're, we're, it's not an option for us to love. But it is voluntary how you love. Love. And what I mean is, is in regards directly with the text, the apostles never instituted an order that those who had extra properties were supposed to sell and give. There, there is no such mandate in the newborn church. No one was being forced or compelled to do it. This will be made very clear next chapter because Peter will look at those two and say, you didn't have to do this. You could have kept the money. So this will establish the reality that this is not a mandatory thing. It it was strictly voluntary to love this way. Although all of them had to love, not all of them had to sell and give. They could if they wanted to. And many did. But none were forced. And the, the reason I bring this is because there's been confusion both... There is confusion in the secular, secular realm and even in the religious realm. Um, in the secular realm, there, there are those political systems that are built upon a utopia of, of um, equality. And they, and they envision if every single one of us had exactly the same things, then everybody would be well, nobody would be poor. And they, in essence, force through their legal systems... For this to happen, so that whoever has two has to give one of those to one who has none, and they they actually balance it in the books. They think of it very mechanically and very um, um, monetarily, even. And even some religions have fixed certain tenets upon this this mutual um, possession. Um. I can name a few of them. The Anabaptists thought this way back in the 1500s. The first Mennonites thought in the way of living with a community of goods. The Moravians, the Shakers. And and even though they could say, look, if you don't want to do this, you can be part of another denomination... There was a sense that if you were born into a Mennonite family and you chose not to do this, you were ostracized and not seen as someone from that group that was doing it the right way. There was this social pressure to share everything and to see everything you have as belonging to everybody, to the community. The idea that everyone, um, everything belonged to everyone, but no one really had the possession of anything. Um, and it's in essence a a Christian form of of communism but the Bible is not teaching that this is how Christianity should exist because again it was voluntary and then there's another detail too that, that I don't think I brought before it was not pure equality that they weren't establishing let's give so that this person will have exactly the same amount as this one who gave That wasn't happening. You saw exactly what it said, that they were giving all based on the needs. Look, verse 32. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they all had all things common. It's how they perceived of what they had. They considered what they had as something that was belonging to God and not saying it's mine it's mine but then look at verse 34 neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and then verse 35 and laid them out down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need and so they weren't they weren't leveling the financial condition of everyone in the church. There were some middle class people that sold nothing and continued middle class, and maybe what they gave was hospitality to people who needed it. There were some people who, who were, had enough and received nothing because they had need of nothing, and they also had no, didn't have extra. And there were some poor who had nothing who now at least had a place to stay and food for each day. But there was still a difference. the the equality and equality I'm going to read a quote that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave and he does speak of an equality but the equality was based on this that, that no one was saying this is mine in their heart they were considering I belong to God everything I have is God's but physically and mechanically they were not equal it was, it was based of, on God's providence. Look what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Communism imposes equality. It, it forces equality. In the early church, there was a voluntary equality and a rejoicing in that. Nothing was done in a spirit of fear because a secret police were watching and you had no choice. It was the exact opposite of some imposed system. It was each one in their own hearts considering... Um, about the things they had. It's, it's, it's even that dimension regarding how we are to see one another. I am to see myself as your servant. But I am not supposed to demand you to be my servant. That is in your heart. But I look at you and I say I'm here to serve you. But I don't demand that you serve me. That is not Christian. The moment I do that I'm not your servant anymore. See, I can't say I'm your servant and you're my servant because I'm immediately with that phrase saying I'm your master. The Christian way is always me considering who I am toward you, the believer. I am your servant. And so then I serve. And I don't demand. The moment I demand, I'm no longer the servant. And that's the beauty of Christianity. It is truly freeing. It is harmonious. It is joyful. There are no demands. There are no no coldness of the state demanding that I live as I ought to live. No, it's all out of love for Christ. It is an acknowledgement. And then thirdly, so we saw here the giving nature of love, the voluntary nature of love. And then thirdly and lastly, the living nature of love. This is putting all this together. They they had this unity. And that could be considered, in essence, the, the, the foundation of their love. They, they had a problem. They go unite in prayer. Now they see the church in need. They are of one heart and one soul. They were knit together with the bonds of love. And this love wasn't only affectionate. It was not just in their minds and heart. It also bore fruit. It showed itself in life. It was, it was real. It proved itself through their kindness. It gave. It cared. It protected. It shared. It provided. It, it fed. It furnished. And this is the love of relationship. And it's lived by our loving. And, and this is nothing but a reflection of God's love to us. He didn't just love look at the world and said they are very lost in sin, I feel sorry for them. He provided exactly what we needed. A savior. And then the Lord Jesus walks upon this earth and he sees our sin as well and he provided exactly what we needed, his holiness and on the cross a sacrifice. So that our sins could be placed upon Him. That's what we needed. And that's what Jesus gave. When Jesus was living His life in holiness, He was giving. Because He was was living a holiness that He would give and impute to our account. And when He died on the cross, He was giving his, His body as a sacrifice for sin. His soul was being made an offering for sin. The Father was giving him. The Son was giving Himself. And we could say this too it wasn't the Father forcing the Son to give Himself. It was the Son willing to give Himself, even in love of the Father and in love of the people that the Father gave to Him. So, in loving us, He gave His only begotten Son. It wasn't an imposed gift. Jesus didn't come just because He had to. He came because He wanted to. And even when we think of the Father, He didn't give His Son because He had to. There were no demands upon the Father to give the Son. It was voluntary as well. This is why it's important to understand even what God said. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy You know where the only demand is in God giving His Son? It is upon Himself because He promised that He would do it. And so because He promised, He had to keep the promise. The demand was only on Himself, which of course means then that it's still voluntary and free. And when Jesus gave His life here on the cross, His demands were also his own he promised to the father that he would do it so now he must he promised to his church that he would do it so now he must it was all voluntary it was all free you serve you care you provide because you live off of him If you're a true believer, you will have the strength to love this way because you will always remember this is how you were loved. And out of that love, you will have the strength to love as well. And we'll be able to be the church that glorifies God. If if there is one thing that is not right in the Christian walk, and and you could use this to evaluate your own heart, if you're living as a Christian because of a sense of duty, something is wrong. It cannot be duty alone. Duty will be there, of course, because it's obedience. But you must do it out of a willing heart because that means you understand That what you're doing is loving. You are simply loving God back. The God who loved you, you are being grateful to. For all the love that He loved you. So let us pray and ask the Lord to strengthen us in this very love. And with this very faith, let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, how thankful we are that we have the testimony of the church, that we have, Lord, this persecution coming upon them, but we see their response. Lord, help us to learn from that. Lord, persecution is coming ever closer to us. and We see it in, in countries nearby us. We pray, Lord, that Thou would help us Help us to respond the right way. That we would have this faith that is very dependent. That we would have this faith, Lord, that has its power. That we would have this faith that brings unity to thy people. And Lord, that we would also have this love that is giving. And this love that is voluntary. And this love, Lord, that is Christ-like ultimately. We pray, Lord, that thou would bless us as thy church in this way, and those Lord who aren't who aren't yet saved. we pray, Lord, that thy grace would save them, that their eyes would be open, Lord, that this is the message that they must believe. This is the Christ in whom they must depend. And we pray, Lord, that thou would open their eyes to see this, open their hearts, Lord, to truly believe.